Our uh, text for today is one of the most encouraging texts in the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. And just to kind of get you there and back there in, in your mind, I just kind of want to quickly review here. We saw in chapters 8 and 9, we saw two chapters of miracles that proved that Jesus was the Christ. And since then, we've had mostly, you know, what we might call negative news. In chapter 10, Jesus sent his disciples out to um, preach, but he emphasized as he sent them out that, uh, that they would face persecution. And he said that they would, they must really love him above their families and love him even above their own lives if they're going to be faithful in this mission that he was sending them on. See, a disciple of Jesus is somebody who loses his life for Jesus' sake. And there was some encouragement there, but in a sense, it was kind of a, a backwards encouragement. It was the implication was that Christ was worth suffering for, but really the focus was more on the suffering itself. And then in chapters 11 and 12, it showed us the beginnings of this persecution. Jesus was rejected by Israel. The Pharisees began to conspire how to destroy him. The persecution that Jesus warned his disciples of was beginning to happen to him. And John even began to wonder if Jesus was the one to come. The cities where he did most of his mighty work miracles uh, refused to repent. The Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath. And then they accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And so chapters 11 and 12 were almost entirely negative. They were showing us how Israel failed to repent, uh, how they failed to respond to Jesus' ministry, except for that brief reprieve at the end of chapter 11, where Jesus says in chapter 11 and verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so despite the rejection, Jesus called all who labor and all who are heavy laden to come to him. And just before that, he spoke about how God the Father was the one who revealed Jesus to what he called their little children. And so in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, from time to time in Matthew, Jesus is going to refer to his disciples as little children. And you know, when you think about it, I, I, I like this idea of being a little child or an infant, or the, the King James Bible translates it as babes. But however we translate it, it speaks of the Father's care for us and our Lord's care for us. We are like little children and the Lord cares for us just like we would care for little children. And chapter 12 ends then on a, on a similar encouraging note. You see, despite all the rejection and hostility, it, it brings us back at the end of chapter 12 and... Um, and we meet the, we, we remember here the 12 disciples. 12 disciples that Jesus called apostles. He sent them to preach the message that Jesus preached. And these 12 and a few others were still with Jesus despite all of the rejection. 
And they were, as Jesus points out in this chapter, they were Jesus's family. And so let's read our text then for today. Matthew 12, starting in verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I just want to point out real briefly here at this point, if you look at your, your ESV, if you've got an ESV Bible here, you might notice that it goes from 46 to verse 48. But there's a little footnote at the end of verse 46, which says this, some manuscripts insert verse, verse 47, and then they translate verse 47 for us. Someone told him, your brothers, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak with you. Asking to speak to you. So let's just, we'll ignore that issue for now. We'll come back to it a little bit later. But Jesus here refers to his disciples as his family. You see, in chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples that they, and really we, need to be committed to him and his mission, even above our own families. And what we see then here is that Jesus practices what he preaches. He is committed to his mission, even above his earthly family. But even more than that, what we see here is that Jesus includes us in his family. We are part of the family of God. We belong to the family of God so long as we are Jesus' disciples, and as we see in verse 49, and so long as we do the will of the Father, as we see in verse 50. And so what we'll see with, with those two conditions, we're going to see what those two conditions mean as we look at our text, but just think about this for now. We are part of God's family. We are Jesus' brother and sister and mother, and his Father in heaven is our Father in heaven. And so this text shows us, shows us that, and, and it's meant really to be an encouragement to those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ. And it begins to present then what one of the highest privileges of salvation, that those who are saved through Jesus Christ have been adopted into God's family. And there really is no thought more delightful than that, that we who were once alienated and separated from God because of our sins, we've been cleansed, we've been forgiven, we've been declared righteous. And then even beyond all of that, we've been welcomed into God's own family. And so it's no wonder that John says with such excitement in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so our time together in this text really should be an encouragement to us, a great encouragement, because this is exactly what our text is supposed to do. It's supposed to encourage us as we see all this rejection. We're supposed to realize, yet we are Jesus' family and even though everyone else rejected him, he accepts us if we are disciples of his. And so we're going to look at our time together. Or we're going to look at our time together. We're going to look at our text together under two headings. The first one is the request from the old family, verses 46 and 47. And we'll, we'll really be pretty brief here on this. But the request of 
the old family. Look at verse 46. It says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. And then 47, someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. And so Jesus is still speaking to the crowds and we learn that he was, or at least at this time he is, inside the house. And he's inside with his disciples and outside is his family. And that's emphasized again in verse 47, which is really just a a repetition of verse 46. And so let's talk just a little bit here about verse 47. Like I pointed out already, the ESV doesn't have a verse 47, except for the footnote that says, some manuscripts insert verse, verse 47, and then they translate verse 47 in the footnote for us. And the reason for this is that the two best-known manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, are both missing verse 47. And they represent, those two manuscripts represent really the, the oldest complete, or, or at least almost complete versions of the New Testament. Now, one of those two manuscripts does include a little correction note, which adds verse 47. So, so the, the one manuscript is aware that there was a verse 47, but the vast majority of manuscripts do include verse 47. So the, the vast majority of the manuscripts that we have do have verse 47. And without verse 47, Jesus's mother and brothers are outside in verse 46. And then Jesus replies to a man who told him so in verse 48, but you don't have that guy in the middle in verse 47 kind of introducing you to the situation. And so what you'd have to do without verse 47 is you would just kind of, as the reader, kind of fill in the details in your mind, and it it really wouldn't be much of a problem. But with verse 47, the the middle man is kind of filled in. And whoever he is, he tells Jesus that his mother and his brothers are standing outside asking to speak to him, and then Jesus responds to this man. Now, it's possible, as we think about this, it's possible that a scribe added verse 47 later to kind of fill out the missing information. And verse 47 really is just basically verse 46 restated. But it, it's, it seems more likely, and most of the commentators agree with this, it seems more likely that verse 47 was original and was just accidentally left off in the copying. The last word of both of those verses in the original is the exact same. It's the word to speak, lalesai. And so it would, it'd be easy for your eye to kind of skip from the end of verse 46 to the end of verse 47 and then miss that whole verse and just kind of continue on. And actually, even like this week, as I was reading my commentaries, there was a, a, a point where I was kind of reading a verse and copying my notes and I skipped down like half a page to the same word later on in the page. And I was like, oh, that thing does actually happen. It's possible that that could happen. But remember, as you kind of think about this happening too, remember that verse numbers weren't added until much, much later. The chapter breaks, and I kind of looked this up a little bit as I was thinking about it this week. The chapter breaks in our Bible weren't added until 1227 A.D., And the first published Bible with the chapter breaks was the Wycliffe English Bible. And that kind of was standardized after the Reformation. The verse numbers that we use today were standardized after the Reformation in 1555 AD. 
and were first published in the Geneva Bible. So the, the scribes who were working on this didn't have the number and they didn't go, oh, where's verse 47 like we would do today because those numbers weren't in place yet. And so as you kind of think about this as well, you know, when, when Peter or Paul or Matthew wrote the scripture, the Holy Spirit carried them along so that what they wrote was ultimately God's word. And God spoke through these men who wrote the Bible. And that means that what they wrote was actually God's word. God revealed himself through the, those men. And because God is true and cannot err, his word is true and cannot error. And so, and so what they wrote in the original manuscripts was perfect. God's word is perfect. But because the church and, and before that, because Israel recognized that the, the words of these men, the words of these prophets were God's words, they sought to preserve God's word. They sought to keep God's word. And so they made copies of these books and they spread these copies around. And every church, if you think about it, every church would have wanted a copy of the letter to the Romans. Every church would have wanted a copy of Matthew and John and Mark and all of these books. And each copy had to be handwritten during a, a time of persecution in the first few hundred years of the church. And what that means is that we have thousands of manuscripts from in different areas of the world and from different centuries and then even translated into different languages. And although God promised to preserve his word, he didn't promise that the copyists would be without error. And you can just think about that for yourself. If you just went and made a copy of the book of Matthew today and just kind of copied it out day by day, line by line, word by word, it's it's very likely that you would make an error in doing that. And so what we have to do then is we have to compare the manuscripts that we have. We have to compare the copies and think about where those versions that we have came from and how old they are. And by doing that, we can discern what was most likely the original text. And, and doing that is called textual criticism. And as you think about textual criticism, maybe it's a, a little bit of a scary thing to think that there's some manuscripts with some differences. But I just want you to know, we've been going verse by verse through the first 12 chapters of Matthew, and we've never had to have a conversation like this to my knowledge. Right? It's, it's so rare that there's ever even a difference that's worth discussing and even this difference, if you think about it, it really makes no difference to our understanding of Matthew. It's really, you would have filled verse 47 in your mind, whether it was there or not. And so for the most parts, when the texts have a difference, it's so obvious, which is the correct reading that the Bible doesn't even mention it. Your English Bibles don't mention it. And, um, you know, some of my technical Bibles maybe do mention it a little bit, but but usually you just look at it and it's so obvious that there was an error in this strain of manuscripts and it kind of carried on. And again, when there is some doubt like we have here and we're not sure if verse 47 is original, it usually makes very little difference in the meeting if, if it makes any difference at all. And no major doctrine of the Christian faith is affected by a difference in the manuscript versions. And this shows us again that God preserved his word through the centuries. And he did so not maybe in a supernatural way, not in a mechanical way, but by natural means. He spread the word around the world and then he allowed us to discover it again years and years later in various places, in, in various um, areas of the world. And even the various translations from ancient times, we can compare those things and, and look at them and we can discern what was the original text. 
And what we see is that they are remarkably similar from all parts of the world. There's not these massive differences. And we could maybe talk more about that, but I think that's enough for today. But, but I just want to say one more thing about this. The, the reason that I prefer to use a Bible like one of, like the ESV or the New American Standard Bible or the Legacy Standard Bible or the Christian Standard Bible or before that the Holman Christian Standard Bible is because those Bibles are based off the, the majority or, or the, all of the Greek texts that we have. Whereas a Bible like the King James Bible or the New King James Bible is based on only a very few manuscripts that existed in 1611 from Erasmus's translation, uh, or, or, or Erasmus's, um, Greek New Testament that he compiled. And so the King James Version and the New King James Version are based on a, a handful of manuscripts. I think it's even less than 12. Whereas these other Bibles that I mentioned are based on all of the manuscripts and all of the evidence that we have. And, uh, and so I prefer these Bibles, even though I don't prefer that the ESV actually leaves this one out because, um, I think it really should have probably been in there. If I was translating it, I would have put verse 47 in there for you, but it's there in the footnote. But all of this uh, to say is that we can trust our English Bibles. I want you to know that you can trust your English Bibles. These are God's word. They're good translations of the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, and they go right back to what the original authors wrote. And so I think verse 47 should be there, but again, it really makes no difference. But if we go back to our text, Jesus's mother and his brothers were seeking to speak with him, and they couldn't get in, probably because of the crowds. And so somebody in the crowd kind of sees what's going on, and that person is able to get to Jesus and tell Jesus that his mother and his brothers are seeking to speak with him. Now, Matthew doesn't really focus on Jesus' earthly family, and he doesn't even tell us what they wanted. They wanted to speak to him. To see that, we really need to turn to Mark chapter 3. And so I, I want you to just turn with me to Mark chapter 3, where Mark kind of gives us a little more detail about what they're trying to do. <clears throat> this is the same context here in Mark chapter 3. It's right close to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we see in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20, Then he went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And then if you just kind of skip down to verse 31, and his mothers and his brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and called him. Verse 32, and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mothers or who are my mother and my brothers? And so Jesus's family, it seems here, thinks that, that he's going crazy. And it seems that even Mary at this point is persuaded despite all that she had recognized years before when Jesus was conceived. Now Joseph isn't mentioned here and really he isn't mentioned in the Gospels from about the return from Egypt. And so most people think that at this time Joseph had already passed away. Now John tells us, the Apostle John tells us in John chapter 7, and actually why don't we just turn there. Let's go to John 7. Just kind of thinking about Jesus' family here. John 7, starting in verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, 
leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds this explanatory note in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. And so Jesus' family didn't believe, which shows, I think it shows that salvation is really by grace alone. You see, even seeing Jesus and growing up with Jesus with, with a sinless older brother wasn't enough. God had to open their eyes later on to the truth of the gospel and to the truth of who Jesus was. And it almost seems as the family comes to see Jesus here that they're going to try to stop Jesus. And maybe they heard about the, the, the Pharisees plot to destroy him. And so they're going to kind of put an end to this crazy crowds and all of this situation with Jesus. But regardless of their motives, they've, they've come to see Jesus. They want to talk to him about something. And Jesus then uses this as an opportunity to teach. Now, what he does here, he doesn't reject his family. He, the focus really isn't so much on his earthly family as it is on what we're going to see next, which is what I called number two in our outline here. Number two, the recognition of the new family. So the recognition of the new family. There was the request from the old family. Now we see the recognition of the new family. And in verse 48, Jesus sets this whole thing up with a question. He says, uh, he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Well, his mother was Mary. And if, if we read Matthew thirteen fifty three, and why don't we go over there for a minute? Matthew 13, 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And so Mary and Joseph, we learn here, had children after Jesus. Remember, she conceived as a virgin. Matthew one twenty five says that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. But after Jesus, they had, Mary and Joseph had James and Joseph and Simon plus some sisters that are unnamed in the scripture. But there's all the sisters, and so there's a a group of sisters as well that they had. Now this destroys, and maybe you don't know about this, but this destroys a, a false and a superstitious teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. See, Mary had, according to scripture, Mary had other children with Joseph, which which we would consider, I think we would consider them Jesus' half-brothers and Jesus' half-sisters. But the crowd, they thought of them as, uh, they thought of Jesus as Joseph, or they thought of Joseph as Jesus' father as well. And so when Jesus asks here, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He's thinking beyond his earthly family to this new family that he's creating. And the fullness of this new community is not going to be revealed until after the resurrection and the establishment of the church, but Jesus introduces this whole thing here. And we've already seen hints of this in the Sermon on the Mount already. And so if we went back, for example, to Matthew chapter 5, 
and verse um, 9, Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Or in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, Jesus says there, Do not be like them, for your father, notice that, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so Jesus taught his disciples to think of God as, as their father, as the collective group's father. Now that's something that wasn't yet revealed in the Old Testament, this idea of the family of God. And so Jesus asked this question, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then look what he does in verse 49. And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, and so he kind of does some kind of a motion like this, here are my mother and here, and my brothers. Here are my mother and my brothers. Jesus says, these people are my family. And he, and he says this with his real family right outside the doors. He says this to his disciples. Now, I'm not sure how this impacts you. And, and maybe you've, you've thought about this before a little bit, but we can kind of get used to these ideas and, and they lose their meaning to us. But there's a few things that we should kind of consider as we think about the impact that this should have on our lives. And the first thing I I want to consider is we need to remember as we hear this, who is calling us his family? You see, this is Jesus Christ speaking. And if you've been with us in our study of Matthew, then you know who he is. He's the virgin-born son of Mary who was conceived from the Holy Spirit. And Matthew begins the book by telling us that he is Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the son of Abraham, that he's the son of David, and that he's the rightful heir to David's throne. And he's the fulfillment of all of the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, which Jesus, with, with, which Matthew showed us. And it means that he is Yahweh in human flesh, that he is God the Son, and that he is the one who came to save his people from their sins. And then Jesus proved all this by his remarkable authority. He had authority over sickness. He had authority over nature. He had authority over demons. He had authority over death itself. And the authority of his deeds showed that he had the power to undo the effects of the fall and that he could, um, that he could bring about the kingdom promised to, to the son of David. And so his, the authority of his deeds showed that he had the power to undo the effects of the fall. And the authority of his deeds showed that he had the power to bring the kingdom of God into reality. And his words also showed this remarkable authority. He spoke like nobody ever spoke. He said he came to fulfill the law and bring it to its intended purpose in the lives of his disciples. He said that the citizens of his kingdom would live, um, they, they would live out the law's requirements by the power of a transformed life. And we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. He said that he had the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said that he was greater than the temple, that he was greater than Jonah, that he was greater than Solomon. He said he was the Lord of the Sabbath, which is really to say that he is the Lord of all. And now this Lord, this Messiah, this God, the son says that we are his family. And so that's the first thing that I I want us to consider is who says this. Jesus Christ himself says, you are my brother and sisters and mother. Now, second, consider who he calls into the family. Who, who does he call family here? He says this 
to his disciples. But who are we as his disciples? Well, when we think about it, all of us were, like all men, women, and children, we were born into this world as sinners. We were born sinners, and by nature, we are children of wrath. We are alienated, or we were alienated and hostile. We were contrary to God. Therefore, we were objects of God's holy wrath. Our desires and affections and wills and thoughts and emotions and actions were offensive to this holy God. See, nothing good dwells in our flesh, and we are, we are flesh when we come into this world. Scripture talks about sacrifices and offerings as a, a sweet-smelling aroma in God's nostrils, but we are, by nature, a hateful stench in God's nostrils. And this makes our salvation really all the more remarkable. We are guilty and worthy of judgment, but God loved us with a great love. And he sent his beloved son who is entirely worthy and entirely lovely. And he became a sweet smelling aroma when he offered himself as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. And so in Christ, we who were once vile in God's sight have become lovely. And in Christ, we who were ugly in God's sight have become beautiful. And in Christ, we who were guilty and unrighteous have been forgiven and declared righteous. And all of that, and really... When you think about our salvation, that's all that was needed. And, but here's the thing. God could have just saved us from our sin and kept us alive, but kept us separate from him because we were so disgusting and vile. He could have saved us and he could have made us like the angels. We could have served him forever in heaven as his slaves. And that would have been awesome. That would have been fantastic. Would have been amazing grace and love and mercy, far, far better, infinitely better than we deserved. But God went even further in our salvation. God brought us to an even better state. Because we who were once enemies are now made family in Christ. We are adopted into God's family such that he becomes our father and we become his children. God didn't do that for the angels. And so we're adopted into the family. Christ becomes our brother and we become part of the household of God. And so we've considered who Christ is and we've considered who we are now. Third, let's just consider this amazing reality of this adoption, this new family relationship that we have. And to do this, I just want to take you to the scriptures. And so let's start by going to John chapter one. I just want you to see the the things that scripture says about this family relationship that we have. And we'll start off in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John 1 and verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so to all of those people who did receive him, to all of those who believed in his name, those two things go together. He, God, gave the right that we might become the children of God. And this is kind of speaking of a legal thing. There's this legal terminology here that we are adopted. We have become, we have the right now, we have this legal right to be the children of God. 
And as God's children, we see there that we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God has regenerated us and welcomed us into his family. We who believed in him have the legal right. We have become the children of God by this legal adoption that's happened. And also, at the same time that that's happened, we were born again from God. And so that's the kind of the first verse. Let's go to Galatians. And there's a couple of verses in Galatians where Paul talks about this to the Galatians. Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. It says there, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So again, there's this connection here between faith and justification. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And so again, when through faith we are justified and we're declared righteous, but also in Christ, we, and, and through faith we're, we're joined to Christ, we become in Christ, and now we are all sons of God through this faith. And Paul picks this up again in chapter 4 and verse 4 where he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now there's just so much happening in this verse, but we have become sons. We have been adopted through the son, our Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the son We have been brought into the family through him. And now God sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we might cry, Abba, Father, which is this kind of a a child's uh, endearing plea to the Father. There's this relationship where we are like the children of God. And we're no longer slaves, but we are now sons. And as sons, we are heirs through God. And what that means is we're going to be an inherit Really everything that would have belonged to Christ as the firstborn with him, we are going to inherit really the entire world and universe through this relationship, this family relationship that we've been brought into. So now go to the book of Ephesians and chapter 1. Ephesians 1 and and verse 4 He chose us, Paul's going to tell us about these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And one of them in verse 4 is that he chose us in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so God decided beforehand that he would adopt us into his family as sons. And this adoption brings us to God, to himself, 
which is the purpose of his will that he decided on really before the foundation of the world. He decided on us to adopt us and bring us to himself, not only as slaves, but also as sons. And later on, Paul kind of picks this up in Ephesians 5 and verse 1, where he tells the church there, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But notice there that we are beloved children. We're like, we're like, um, only children there is kind of the way the, the Greeks saw the only child as a, a special child who got all the, the presence and love of his family. You know, I have one of my children kind of thinks like that too. And I, just the other day he was saying, man, if I was the only child, I would get all the, toys and presents that you got those other guys, you know, I would have had that for myself. And the Greeks kind of thought that way. Not that that's a good way to think, but the Greeks thought that way. And, and so they, there, there was this, this idea of the beloved child with, with a single child in this family. And we are viewed like that. We are beloved children, but God is infinite and he can love all of his children with the fullness of his love. And that's kind of what Ephesians 5 is talking about. We are part of God's family. Go to Romans um, chapter 8. <clears throat> Romans 8 verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And then if you just skip over to verse 29 there, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that, that he, and that he there is speaking about the son, that the son would be the firstborn among many brethren. And so if we just kind of take all of this, we've been legally transferred into God's family. And the Holy Spirit teaches us to call God Abba Father, a, a very endearing way to address God as little children. And it implies this idea of this intimacy with God that we have, this this close relationship. We've been brought to God as sons and daughters. And as sons and daughters, we share the inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ. And we've been predestined for this privilege. We've been predestined not only to be made like Christ, we've also been predestined to be adopted And so if we've been truly justified and we've been truly adopted by faith, our inheritance is guaranteed because God is a good father and he promises to discipline us if we go astray as his children. And he adopted us into his family. If you think about it, he adopted us into his family when we were ungodly sinners and he brought us to himself into his household by grace And now that we're born from above and part of his family were regenerated, how much more is he going to keep us by his power? Do you see that? If he adopted us when we were sinners, how much more will he keep us now that we are sons? And so adoption really is the highest privilege imaginable. See, there's no image 
that's closer, that, that'd be really available to us as a picture of how close God brought us. He has brought us right into his family. And so we've considered then under this point, who is calling us to the family? It's Jesus Christ, God's only son who is himself God. We've considered who we were once sinners. We've been called into this family. And now third, we've considered a little bit about what adoption entails. See, God is our father. Christ is our brother. And, and we, all of us, you know, if you just look around this room, every one of us who is truly born from above, every one of us who is a, a true Christian and a disciple of Christ, we are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now go back to our text here, Matthew chapter 12. And we just need to see now kind of a, as a second sub point under number two here, we need to see who this is for. <clears throat> who gets to enjoy this rich privilege of being part of God's family? We already saw in verse 49 that Jesus stretched out his hands to his disciples. And so this blessing is really only for Jesus' disciples. He even remarkably even excludes his own earthly family from this. They're not disciples yet. But now we need to see what Jesus adds in verse 50. Look at verse 50 there. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. A few things to, to kind of note here. Maybe first of all, it's brother and sister and mother, not brother or sister or mother. And the idea here is just, you're just part of the family. You don't have to get so specific about it. It's kind of a metaphorical way of talking here that Jesus is using. Secondly, it says it's for whoever. Whoever does the will of my father. Anyone could be included in this. Whoever does the will of the father is in the family. Whoever meets the condition will have the blessing. And so even Jesus' earthly family, they could have been adopted. And, and later we'll find that James was adopted into the family and he led the church in Jerusalem. He also wrote the epistle that is known as James. And so this family blessing is open to whoever would have it, but you must enter into it the way that Jesus describes here. And then thirdly, this is for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. And here's something that we really, I think, need to pay attention to. And I, I want to kind of address this a little bit. This is really important here. And, and Jesus is equating two things here. Discipleship and doing the will of his father. You see, a disciple is somebody who does the will of the father in heaven. And according to Jesus, that is who a true disciple is. And so don't be deceived by this. You know, there's a, a stream of teaching which would kind of deny the connection that Jesus makes here. You see, some would say that obedience is optional. Some would say that obedience maybe is even highly recommended, but not necessary to salvation. And such a one would say, and, and it sounds right, and it, it, it actually is right, but such a one would say that we are saved by faith alone. And that faith and doing the will of the Father are not necessarily connected. Now, I agree with the first part. I don't agree with the second. We are saved by faith alone, but faith and doing the will of the Father are necessarily connected. 
Such a one might even claim that requiring obedience is adding to the gospel a form of works. But what should we make of this? Look at what Jesus says. It's for the disciples. It's for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. That is Jesus' brother and sister and mother. Now, our friend who has this kind of, kind of form of teaching might say, ah, but what is the will of the Father? And they might take us to a text like John chapter 6. And you might, you might know this one, John 6, 28, 29. They said to him, said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so such a one might say the only work required is to believe. And, and to an extent, again, that's true. And we agree that salvation is by faith alone. We can add nothing to our own, uh, nothing of our own to contribute to our salvation. But here's where we disagree. And I think this is really important. And I think I'd, I'd even be so bold as to say that Jesus disagrees. You see, saving faith is a life-changing thing. True faith, true belief in Christ will result in obedience. True faith will result in love for Jesus Christ. True faith will result in serving God with a strong commitment and devotion to do His will. True faith will result in the fruit of the Holy Spirit in one's life. And true faith will result in doing the will of the Father. And so some people kind of just... Um, drain faith of every bit of meaning. But faith is a powerful thing. True saving faith is something that connects us to the vine and transforms our life because we are now connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus everywhere in Matthew kind of assumes this truth that salvation is going to result in discipleship, which is also going to result in a transformed life. Disciples are going to do the will of Jesus' Father in heaven. And those who do this will, and only those, are children of God. And so we really need to think about this carefully then. What is this will of my Father? What does this mean? Where have we seen this before? You see, this is the second time that we've seen this phrase in Matthew. And I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Because it kind of shows us what to, to make of this. This phrase, the, the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, it does not mean that only perfectly obedient people are Jesus' family. And that if you fail to do the Father's will, you're going to be kicked out of the family. It does not mean that. Now we've seen this in a key place before in the Sermon on the Mount, right in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verse 21. And so let's go and look at that. And we need to kind of revisit the Sermon on the Mount. Look at 721 first, the conclusion. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the one who will enter. And I like how the the New American Standard Bible in that place actually adds something like that. They will enter. But that's the same phrase there. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So who's going to enter the kingdom Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And who's going to be a son of God? Again, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, when we saw this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, 
here's how we explained it. Um, this whole sermon, this whole Sermon on the Mount was about the kind of person who would enter the kingdom. And so what did Jesus say about who would enter the kingdom? Well, just to kind of recap a little bit, these people, starting in Matthew chapter 5 and verse, verses, um, really verses 3 and onwards, these people were blessed. They were called the blessed people. They were in, in an enviable state because of who they were. In verse 3, they were poor in spirit. Verse 4, they were those who mourned, and we saw that they were those who mourned over their bankruptcy of spirit. They, they, they mourned over their sin. In verse 5, they were meek. They were, they were tamed people. They were brought under the control of God. In verse 6, they hungered and thirst for righteousness. In, in other words, they didn't have as much righteousness as they wanted. They wanted more, and, and righteousness then is going to be a key part, a key word in this Sermon on the Mount. And so it doesn't mean that these people are perfect. They, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, but they, they actually put it into practice as they grow in the Christian life. In verse 7, they are merciful people because they've received mercy. In verse 8, they're pure in heart. They have this pure desire to please and live for God. In verse 9, they've become peacemakers. And they're going to be called sons of God. And then in verse 10, they're even those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And, and both at the beginning and the end of the Beatitudes there, it said, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And these blessed people, they must have these characteristics because that's really what defines them. Just like salt must be salty, so we must be what we are as citizens of this kingdom. And we saw that in verse 13. And then in verses 14 to 16, we are light in the world and our light must shine for the glory of God. And then in chapter 5, verse 17, really to the end in verse 48, Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law in our hearts and in our lives. And he gives six examples there of how the law is going to be lived out in the heart of a citizen of, the, of heaven. You see, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 20 of chapter 5, or else we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Our righteousness ends up showing a, a dramatically transformed life because we live with an aim to please God from the heart. And so our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees because we are transformed people by the grace of God. And our aim in verse 48 of chapter 5 is to be like our heavenly father. Our, we're after a, a perfect righteousness and holiness even in this life. And that means in from chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, that we practice our righteousness not to impress men by our outward actions, but really to please God who sees our secret motives and sees our heart. And the three examples that Jesus gave there of living out our righteousness was the example of giving and praying and fasting. And he went into more detail on prayer where we saw that the secret prayer of such a one is that is that they they want to glorify God they want God to be glorified and so they pray in verse 9 like this our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come they want God's kingdom to come it's not here yet and and they want his will to be done on earth even as it is done in heaven and it starts in their own lives they want God's will done in the way that they live their lives for his glory and we also pray that, that God would meet our needs because we're the people who trust in God to care for us, not in our own strengths and abilities. 
And we also pray in verse 12, thank God that, that, uh, for him to forgive our sins because even though we hunger and thirst after righteousness and even though we've been dramatically transformed, we're not made perfect yet. And so we confess our sins. And I think it's so helpful for us to see that here. But our focus really is to glorify God and our focus is on serving him and our focus is on, on loving him. And we know as we do that, that he's going to reward us for how we live this life. And so we have a, a single focus in chapter six, verses 19 to 34, a single focus to serve and love and, and be devoted to God and not to serve and love and be devoted to the things of this world. And because of that focus on God, we aren't worried, or at least we, we shouldn't worry. We're not to worry because God is a God who cares for us as, as, as our Father, as we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, which is really what we've been talking about all along, this pursuit to glorify God with our lives. And then in chapter 7, kind of a, a much uh, abused passage in the middle of this sermon, verses 1 to 6, we're not to judge others, but our, our goal is to help them live this way. We help one another walk this path, but we also have to be discerning as we do that and not give what is holy to dogs. And so we, we correct one another, but first we, we deal with our own sin and then we try to help others to live this way. And then in chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, we're those who pray. And we're to pray expecting an answer and, and we're to pray asking God to help us live in the way that, that is described in this Sermon on the Mount. And then verses 13 to the end is a powerful conclusion. And it's full of just kind of two options. There's two paths and two ways and two kinds of trees and two kinds of prophets and two kinds of houses and, and two, two of everything. There's a narrow path that leads to life and there's a broad path that leads to destruction and there's few on the narrow way and there's many on the broad way. And Jesus warns then of false teachers, beware of false prophets. They're going to lead you on this broad path. And what this broad path is, is it's the path that doesn't live out the truths that Jesus taught in this sermon. And so you got to beware of these false prophets and you can recognize them by their fruits, which means that you can recognize them by the way that they live if they live according to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And if they don't live that way, they're a rotten tree and they're on their way to hell and so don't listen to them. Good trees bear good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit. And so two paths, two trees, and then in verse 21 there's two professors of religion. There's two kinds of people who are going to call Jesus Lord. They're going to say, Lord, Lord. And again, we have the few and the many. Many are going to say, Lord, Lord, but they're not going to do the will of the Father. In other words, they're not going to live out the life that Jesus laid out in this sermon. And they're not going to be transformed by grace and they won't have this exceeding righteousness. And so they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And instead, these people in verse 23 are workers of lawlessness. Instead of living righteously, they are lawless. And then Jesus says there's really two kinds of hearers of this sermon. There's the wise and the foolish. There's two kinds of builders, the wise and the foolish. And the wise person is going to obey and do what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And the foolish person is not going to do it. And their judgment is going to be great. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
And so when Jesus says to his disciples, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, he's really speaking of of those who hear and do what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's not those with a mere profession of faith, but those whose faith has transformed their lives. It's those who have this God-centered righteousness that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. Those are the people who are Jesus' family. They are his true disciples. And, and I hope as we kind of see that, that this is a great encouragement for you. As you've been kind of working through this book, we've seen what Jesus calls us to be as his children. And if we are these kinds of people, then we are in the family of God. And that's just a wonderful, wonderful thing to know. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the, the truth in this passage. And we thank you that Whoever will may come and and live this life. Whoever will can follow you. And Father, even as we think about that, we just confess that we haven't followed you fully the way that, that we want. But you've made us people that hunger and thirst for righteousness, that want to live these lives that glorify you. Father, you've opened our eyes to the glory of Christ and to your glory. And we want to live lives that glorify you. We want to live for your sake because we know that you are worthy. And Father, we know that since we feel this way, we know that we are the children of God. And even your spirit within us encourages us that that we are the children of God and bears fruit in our lives that shows us that we are the children of God. And so we are bold, Father, to call you our Father today. And we thank you that Christ is our brother and that we are co-heirs with him. And we thank you for the family that you've given us here, this family called Grace Bible Fellowship, this family of true Christians all over the world who know you and love you and live for you. And so we thank you for our family, Father. We thank you for inviting us in. We thank you for this high point of salvation that you've given us. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.